Uh, we are going to be continuing our series on First and Second Peter. Last week, Joe, uh, one of our elders, took us through verses 6 through 9, so we're going to be picking up in verse 10. I'd like to read that, and then we'll pray and, and get into the message. This is First Peter 1, starting in verse 10. And just a reminder, he's going to open up, he's going to say, concerning this salvation. So verses 3 through 9 up until this point, really verses 3 through 12, but 3 through 9 have been laying out this blessed assurance, this hope that we have of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. So that's what he's referring to when he, he kind of concludes this opening thought. And he says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we, we want to behold you. You are on your throne. That's where you've been from the beginning. And we praise you for that. We praise you that in whatever year it may be, years of political turmoil, international conflict, economic conflict, medical, natural disaster, whatever's going on on a big picture, and whatever's going on in our lives, Lord. Difficulties at work, difficulties at home, difficulties with family members, health problems. Whatever it is, Lord, you are on your throne. And so, God, we just want to behold you. Nobody needs to hear from me this morning. We need to hear from you. May these be your words. Your word is alive and active, Lord, so use it to cut through this morning. We desperately need you to do what you do. Refine us. Burn away the impurities. Purify your church. Purify your bride. Teach us this morning. It is such a privilege to come and learn from you. May we be filled for a passion with this, a passion for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've got 10 through 12 wrapping up this opening section. And what we're going to do is we're going to do what we've been doing. We're just going to go through and we're going to look at this. Because what we see in verses 10 through 12, Mario and I were talking about this before services. We were going, as the band was going through rehearsal and stuff. And I, I, I really feel like what we see in verses 10 through 12 is we see a truth that I think is pretty obvious. And I think a lot of us have heard before. I, I don't think the first half of this message is going to be anything new. But what I told Mario is I think sometimes there are things that are so obvious that we forget about them because they just become this routine. Yay, I've heard it before, I know. I mean, how many of you, up, up until I ask this question, how many of you are conscious of the fact that you're breathing? Who of you 30 seconds ago was thinking, okay, inhale, okay, now exhale. Okay, now inhale, now exhale. No, we just, we, it, yeah, whatever. I know that's part of life, so I don't think about it. I don't give any attention to it. But we have to. We have to pay attention to these things. And so that's where we're going to begin. So considering breathing, what's more important when you're breathing, inhalation or exhalation? 
Peggy's shaking her head. She's like, that's a terrible question. This is why Sam's not a doctor. Right? But she's right. It's impossible. You can't separate inhalation from exhalation. Breathing is both. So to the believer, to the church, what's more important, the Old Testament or the New Testament? Can't separate the two. But does our behavior reflect this? See, the first thing I think we see in verses 10 through 12, he says what? He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. He's reminding the church in 64, 65 AD, look back. Look back at the prophets who prophesied. This has been the message from the start. And I think a lot of times we make the mistake in our own lives of giving an undue balance to the New Testament. Don't get me wrong, the New Testament is beautiful. I love the New Testament, but we cannot neglect the Old Testament because it is rich and powerful and essential, and it must be so in our lives. Consider what Scripture says about this. John 5, 39, 46 through 47, Jesus is speaking, and he says, You search the Scriptures. Was any letter in the New Testament written at this point in time? When Jesus was on earth talking, were any of the New Testament letters written? No. So if he's referring to Scripture, he's referring to what? What we now call the Old Testament. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says to the people listening, you want to know me? You want to understand me as a teacher? You've got to begin with the scriptures. How in the world are you going to believe me if you won't believe the things that have been written about me? Jesus placed the utmost importance on the Old Testament. Acts 3, verses 18 through 24. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Acts 26, 22, and 23. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Writing Acts. Luke is writing Acts, and he's recording these conversations that the apostles are having with the crowd, with the unbelieving world. And what's he recording? He records that the apostles, while they're speaking, the apostles speaking to the crowd say, look, we've said nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. The early church was given the scriptures. That's what the apostles taught. He goes on to say that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
Genesis 3, Genesis 22, 28, 49, Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 18, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, 53, 65, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, 9, Joel 3, Zechariah 12 through 14, Ezekiel 40 through 48. These are just a handful of the Old Testament chapters that are explicitly about the coming Messiah. You want to know Jesus? Go to the Old Testament. Go to Scripture. Go to the entirety of it. We do ourselves, we do the church a massive disservice when we only focus on the second part of this Bible. It's all one story. Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I mean, be honest. When we're looking for encouragement, when we're looking for a passage to read, when we're looking for a devotional, where do we first go to 90% of the time? We go to the New Testament. The New Te well, the New Testament's encouraging. The New Testament is hopeful. The New Testament is uplifting. No, the writers of the New Testament said, hey, you want to be encouraged? You want to have hope? Go to the Old Testament. Go to the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 14-15, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament establishes the need for a Messiah. You want to understand atonement? You want to understand sacrifice? Go read Leviticus and Exodus. You want to understand the need for a Savior? Go read Judges. The Old Testament must be a part of our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. Listen to this in Acts 20. This is Acts 20, verses 20 through 27. This is Paul speaking. You know, you yourselves know, how I did not shriek, shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life or any of any value, not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All right, so this is the ministry. Paul, he, he's establishing, right? He says, look, this is my life's goal, to testify to the gospel, gospel, good news. So to testify to the message of Jesus, this is my life's goal, my ministry. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God, the scriptures, the Old Testament. 
Paul says, this is my ministry. I did not shrink from this. Shame on any believer, shame on any church who shrinks from the whole counsel of God. One of the notions in modern day church, and you've maybe heard this phrase is, Christians, the church just needs how to learn, we need to learn to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. If you hear a pastor or church say that, get up and walk out because they do not understand the Bible and they do not understand faith. This is one. We cannot shrink from the entire council. We must know Scripture in its entirety. He is reminding those going through intense persecution and sufferings, look back at the prophets. We've been taught this. We've been told this. We've been given this to know and understand. Guys, I will never stop emphasizing the need for you all individually and us collectively as a church to know this whole book. What's he referring to when Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all because I did not shrink from the message? He's referring to an Old Testament passage. Read through Ezekiel, you'll find it. I'm not going to tell you what chapter. You have to read it all. But see, everything in the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. So we have to know it all. We have to treasure it all. It's like breathing. It's like inhaling and exhaling. You can't have one without the other. Please cherish the whole counsel of God. Please grasp the beauty and the significance of it. Pursue it. We need to be honest with ourselves if we do these things. And see, the reason it's so vital, it's so valuable, is because it's one cohesive work. It's not two separate things that were then kind of glued together. It's one message. It's one message because there's one author. There's one author who does not change. So when he says the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours... They're writing that because the God who prophesied coming grace has always been a God of grace. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so vital. Because we make the mistake sometimes of relegating different elements of God to different members of the Trinity. Well, God the Father, he's the one of justice and judgment and wrath. And Jesus, Jesus is the one of mercy and grace. No. Whatever is true about Jesus is true about God, is true about the Holy Spirit. It's one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So Jesus representing grace in the New Testament, well, guess what? God was a God of grace and mercy in the Old Testament. And if we're not familiar with the Old Testament, then we won't know the full picture of who God is, and we will think about God with an improper perspective. And we will reduce God to an improper degree because we do not grasp the whole counsel of God and see the full picture of God. Consider these Old Testament passages. Exodus 34, 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 2 Kings 13, 23, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. 2 Chronicles 39, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. 
For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. Nehemiah 9, 30-31, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Knowing the Old Testament, knowing the New Testament, knowing the entirety of Scripture gives us the revelation of God that He has given to us. That's why Romans says, right, if you want encouragement, if you want hope, go to Scripture. I mean, if you want to be reminded, like the dead serious, make a note. If you're someone who struggles with the idea of God being patient or God being merciful and kind, read Judges. I will give you a summary of Judges. God says, don't do this thing. The people do this thing. They screw up. It goes terribly. God says, okay, I'll be merciful on you. Now don't do this thing. The people do this thing. They screw up. It goes terribly. God says, okay, I'll be merciful on you. Don't do this thing. The people do this. Like, literally, that's judges. You want to be reminded of God's patience and mercy? Read the Old Testament. You want to be reminded of His goodness and His provision? We spent, what, six months going through Joshua, watching God go before His people at every step of the way, fighting for them? The whole counsel of the Lord matters so that we can operate from a full picture of who God is, so that we do not relegate Him to different sections, so that we do not break Him apart. Adeline reminded me of a great quote from Tozer. We were talking about it just this morning. And she was like, oh, I love that one quote from Tozer where he says that the moment we begin to operate with a slightly changed or distorted view of God, it has become idolatry. Because it's not God as he revealed himself. So the moment I start to think of, well, God the Father, he's the, he's the just wrathful one, not the merciful one, I'm committing idolatry. The full counsel of the Lord guards against this. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. What a beautiful summation and endorsement of what we call the Old Testament. We must know the full counsel of God. And then as we come out of this, what does he say? So he reminds them of the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And he says, They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Brief side note, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy came about by human accord, but as they were moved by the Holy Spirit... And then here indicating, or what the Spirit of Christ in that, I mean, that's a pretty cool Trinitarian picture of how we got Scripture. We have to understand the triune God and just see those fun details that reinforce these truths. But so we come out of that and it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And I think this is a vital reminder. I think it was a vital reminder for the church back then. I think it's a vital reminder for us now. I've said this before. I will keep saying it because I need to hear it. Church is not about you. Church is not about me. 
church is not about the pastor. Church is not about the fellow pastors, the elders. Church is not about us. When we show up to church with a consumeristic mindset, what will I get? What will they do for me? What will they give me? What will they provide me? We have missed the point of being the body. That's a beautiful benefit. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burden, so fulfill the law of Christ. It is a beautiful benefit to show up to a body of believers, to a family of believers and receive comfort, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So there are beautiful benefits to being in the body, but the body itself is not about us. It is never intended to be a self-serving organism. It is not meant to be an entity that exists to serve your needs above all else. Peter reminds this, or reminds the people of this. He says, they were serving not themselves, but you. We have to understand that we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. That we are a piece of this puzzle. We are a thread in the tapestry of God advancing his kingdom through his church. Consider the church of 64, 65 AD, the believers that Paul is writing, or that Peter's writing to. Consider everyone who was involved to bring the church to where it was at that point, who he mentions in these verses. What does he say? He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they are part of this message continuing. And then he says, the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news. Every generation of the church is a part of God's plan. We cannot have this myopic view that the church is about just us today. That we exist in isolation, that we exist separate from the church of 100 years ago, 200 years ago, from 100 years from now. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be tomorrow. It could be the year 3000. We are part of the big picture of what God is doing, and we have to learn to take our eyes off of ourselves and be a part of this. Why? Because it's not about us. The prophets who prophesied in the old, how did they do so? The Spirit of Christ in them. Those who preach the good news in current day for the people receiving this letter, how did they do so? Those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. We've never been the engine. We've never been the catalyst for the movement of the church. It's been God from the start. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, how according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory. The church has always meant been meant to be the body of Christ, powered by Christ, living for Christ, advancing Christ's mission, advancing his kingdom. Never about us, never about the individuals. Listen to this passage. This is one of the, I think this is one of the funniest ways to talk to a group of people, but also one of the most beneficial ways. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. How would you guys feel if I got up on Sunday morning? I was like, what's up, everybody? You bunch of weak, unimportant fools. Look at you. Nobody considers you smart. Nobody considers you important. Nobody considers you of any note. And that's a good thing. There's a part of you, you'd start listening, you'd be like, okay, dude, he's off a little bit, right? But he writes this letter and he's like, look, it's not about us. We're weak. We're not influential. We're not powerful. We're not the big end, be all, end all. And that's a good thing so that we can't be tempted to boast that it's about us. If anything good is happening in this body of believers, it is not about me. It's not about the elders. It's not about the people leading Bible studies. It's not about the worship team. If anything good is happening is in this body, it is because of the Holy Spirit. It is because of Jesus. It is because of God and God alone. He reminds us of this. He says, they were serving not themselves, but you. We must grasp this because when I see this truth I start to ask okay is this a one-time thing or is this something we see throughout scripture and we see it throughout scripture first Corinthians 3 9 through 10 for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field God's building according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it let each one take care how he builds upon it When was the last time you sat down and looked at yourself and said, what have I built upon the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ is the foundation. The apostles built upon that foundation. Those who came after them built upon that. And the church has been being built upon until 2022. When is the last time you looked in the mirror and you said, what have I done to build upon this foundation? Or have I just shown up wanting to consume? Have I just shown up wanting to be served? Have I just shown up wanting to be told what makes me happy and what makes me feel better about myself? Or am I willing to roll up my sleeves to grab some brick and mortar and to do the hard work of building upon this foundation? Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 16. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Are you subject to everyone else in this room? Are your wants and needs subject to everyone else's wants and needs in this room? You know what? I've got stuff in my own life that weighs on me. I've got stuff that I need help with. But Mike, how are you doing? Let me serve you before showing up expecting you to just serve me. Are you subject to everyone else in this room, to your fellow workers and laborers? Are you desiring to serve the other generations of this church, the other members of this church? Are we building upon the foundation 
Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 and 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, talking about the church. This, this chapter in modern translations, remember they wouldn't have had the section headings when he originally wrote it. But so this chapter, we summarize this chapter as unity in the body of Christ. So this whole chapter is about the body of Christ, the church. Ephesians 4, 11, And he, God, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Then you jump down to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, all of you, it's one of the reasons I believe in church membership and making a commitment to a body of believers and entering into that covenant of, yes, Joe, Leanna, I am committed to you. I give myself to you. Every body part, when it is working together, when it is equipped with every joint, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You are a member of this body. You are a part of this body. You have been placed here by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians talks about that the church is assembled by the Holy Spirit. You have been placed here for the purpose of building up this body. When is the last time you looked in the mirror and said, what am I doing to actively build up this body? Showing up and sitting there frozen doesn't cut it. It doesn't. I'm going to get there. I'm going to go to my seat. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to pray with anybody. I'm not going to check in with anybody. And as soon as it ends, I'm out the door because I got a roast in the oven. That is not building up this body. Are you getting to know one another? Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6 2. How am I going to bear your burdens if I don't even know your name to ask about your burdens? If I don't care enough to ask, how in the world am I supposed to come alongside you as a brother and rejoice with you and mourn with you? We have to invest in one another. We have to lift our eyes beyond ourselves. We have to serve not ourselves, but others. This has been the plan for the church from the beginning. You want to talk about the Old Testament? Go read through the first five books of the Old Testament and just circle, underline, highlight, whatever you want to do. Make note of every time the Israelites engage in behavior with the specific purpose of instructing or reminding future generations. Take note of how often the people of Israel are commanded to deliberately set up a way to teach and build up and edify future generations. They were constantly serving the next round of God's people. Is that our focus today? This has to matter to us. 2 Timothy 2.2 And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's writing these letters to Timothy. He's talking about church leadership. He's saying, you're a young guy. You're engaging in church leadership. Here's how you do it. Here's what you've been taught. Find people you can teach who can then teach others. See, it's building. It's constantly perpetuating the church. 
I have one of my audacious dreams for this church is that everyone in here will have a mentor where every single one of us will have someone who we are going to and checking in who is being a Paul to our Timothy so that we are growing in maturity and then we can be a Paul to a Timothy so that we are investing in other believers so as you're considering this question, I realize that's kind of a murky question, right? What are you doing to build up the church? Ask yourself two questions to help you answer that overarching umbrella question. Who is investing in you? Who is discipling you? And are you at a place, because I want to be very deliberate with this, Scripture is clear that there are standards for leadership investment, right? Like when talking about the elders, when talking about the leadership, it says it shouldn't be a new believer. So I get that there are levels of spiritual maturity, and we should not try and force someone who is not spiritually ready into a place. That's improper stewardship. Okay, I get that. I'm not talking about that. So the first question to ask yourself is, who is investing in you? Who are you checking in with? Who is checking up on you personally saying, how are you doing? Where are you growing? Are you growing? What are you pursuing? How can I pray for you? How can I come alongside you? And then second is kind of a two-part question. Are you at a place of spiritual maturity where you could do that with someone else? If not, how long have you been a believer? And if we're talking, I've been a believer 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and I'm not in a place of spiritual maturity where I could invest in someone else, why are you coasting? Why are you sitting on the sideline? Why aren't you pursuing this deeper maturity? Do you not want to have an impact? Do you have no desire to build up the body? Maybe our prayer needs to begin there. Maybe we've never heard this before. I, maybe for some of us, I just read some verses that you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't know those were in there. If that's the case, okay. You didn't know. I love learning new things. I, I absolutely love learning new things. So if you learned this for the first time today, I'm not, I'm not rebuking you. If you learned this for the first time, if this is the first time you have wrapped your mind around the concept of, wow, I have been called to build up Ephesians, I mean, all of those verses, I have been called to take an active role in building upon the foundation of the church, in building up the local body. I've never considered that before. I need to get on this. Awesome. If this isn't a new idea to you and you're not engaged in it, then you've got some real hard self-evaluation to do. But ask, who is investing in you? Who is discipling you? Who is helping you grow? Who is pushing you? And also on this, and I love the ecclesia. I love the gathering of God's people. I love Sunday morning fellowship. But this sermon is not personal discipleship. It's not. Because what is not happening this morning? Mike is not getting a chance to reply to this. Sarah's not getting a chance to reply to this. Logan, Sydney, Becky, Dawson, Walker, not Dawson, Walker. My, sometimes my mouth moves faster than my mind can keep up. Phil, right? We're not sitting down with these people and saying, hey, where are you in life? How does this, you know, do you understand this? Do you have questions about this? So this is great. God's people should come together and open the word and learn and study it together. But this is not personal discipleship. So who's investing in you? Well, I'm the smartest, most spiritually mature person I know. One, maybe check your ego. 
Two, if you're being truthful, maybe you are, maybe you are the smartest, most spiritually mature person you know, then two, expand your circles. I don't ever want to be the most experienced, smartest person I know. You know the first bit of advice that I got from five different pastors when I accepted this call? I mean, five different pastors, they were like, before you do anything, you need to go find guys who have been doing this longer, who are wiser, who are deeper in their faith, and you need to ask them to disciple you. I have three such men. And I've set it up so that I check in with them on alternating weeks. So every week I am talking to one discipler, one mentor. And they're asking, how can I rejoice with you? And if it's a week where we can rejoice over stuff, great. But then they're saying, okay, what are you doing to not get cocky and arrogant? They're keeping me in check. If it's a hard week, how can I mourn with you? Okay, what are you doing to not grow bitter and cynical? I mean, I believe in this, guys. I believe in the investment of the church in one another. And I think the church needs to believe in it. Because it's what I see in Scripture. It's what I see laid out. That part of God's plan for the impact of His church is that the church will be actively engaged in building one another up and sharpening one another and pushing one another deeper. Elsewhere in Paul's letter to Timothy, he says, always exhort the people. Challenge them, push them, grow them. We need to take personal ownership for this in our lives. I see these, these truths, these beautiful, beautiful truths that Peter reminds the people of and that I think we need to be reminded of. Because when we do this, our humility grows. Our love for one another grows. Our depth of fellowship and connection with one another grows. When we pursue being a part of the body that builds up the body, we grow. And ultimately, we become more like Jesus. Jesus served the church. Jesus taught the church. Jesus had what? We've talked about at different points. They talk about 5,000 disciples, 10,000 following me. Jesus had thousands of disciples, and what did he do? He grabbed 12 to be his apostles, to invest in, to spend time with. Jesus modeled this for us. This all has to come back to wanting to be like Jesus, which should be the burden and the cry of every believer's heart. Jesus built the church? Are we relentless in our pursuit of building up the church? This is what I will strive for. This is what we're asking this body to strive for. It's a beautiful, beautiful privilege to be part of the church. Let us not neglect what we have been assigned to do by God. So this week, as we consider these things, let's read 2 Samuel 7. Let's read Zechariah 12 and 13. Let's read 1 Corinthians 3. Let's read Hebrews 11. Feel free to take a picture. We'll also have the bookmarks as you leave that you can stick in your Bible, you can use to track your reading. And then the do, the application, let's do some self-evaluation. What are you personally doing to serve and invest in building up the church? What are you personally doing to serve and invest in the future generations of the church? Parents, 
Start at home. There's seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day. I'm not going to even pretend like I can do the math that quickly. The kids wing gets your child for 45 minutes to an hour a week. I'm at least able to do the math to know that you have way more time with your kid than the kids wing does. You should be discipling your children aggressively and deliberately. Grandparents, you watch your grandkids, disciple them. You get together with your grandkids, disciple them. I mean, discipleship, if it's not beginning at the home with the people in our lives, it's got to at least start there. But ask, what are you personally doing to build up, to invest, to serve the church and future generations of the church? Prayer ideas, prayer ideas if you struggle with prayer, praise God for his character, right? Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the whole counsel of God. Praise God for his unchanging character. Praise him for who he has always been and who he is today. Confess if you've been operating from a wrong view of him. Lord, forgive me. I I did. I thought of Jesus as the kind, good, gentle one. I thought of you as the angry one. Forgive me, Lord. Maybe we need to confess things like that. Maybe we need to confess, God, I've shown up and I've just done nothing but consume for 10, 15, 20, 60 years. Forgive me. Maybe I've, I've done nothing but consume for one year. Forgive me. Thank him for his plan. Thank him for how he has laid this out. Thank him that he has looked at us and said, guys, I'm going to give you the roadmap. I'm going to give you my whole counsel. I'm going to give you my word. Thank him for this. And then ask him to burden us for this. Ask him to lead us in this. Ask him to teach us these things. And then the connect idea, start it right now after the service as you leave. But then continue to, like, when we give you these connect ideas, it's not a one-off, right? Like some weeks when I'm like, hey, go meet a new person. That's not like a, well, I met one new person three years ago. Done. Like, keep doing them because they're good things. So this connect idea is we look at the idea of serving and investing in the future generations of the church, of of being a multi-generational, intergenerational church. Ask yourself, who do you really have conversations with on a Sunday morning that's 20 years removed from your age? I get it. We're going to hang out with our peers. It's easiest for Adeline and Leanna to say, hey, we're both stay-at-home moms. We've got kids in the same age range. Let's get together, right? Like, I get it. That makes sense. We tend to spend the most time with the people we can most relate to. I'm not saying abandon those friends. I'm saying, do you really have friends outside 20, 30 years of your age? Or do you show up and you talk to the same crowd of people? So start investing in the other generations of this church. Start investing in relationships, not just a, hey, how you doing? Good. Okay, cool. Hey, how you doing? I'm 50. You're 17. What's high school like? Been a while for me. How can I pray for you? 17-year-old probably thinks you're a freak. That's okay. Model it for them so that when that 17-year-old is a 50-year-old, they're going to the teenagers in their church saying, hey, how you doing? I care about you. How can I pray for you? Build relationships within the generations. Let's be a church like we see in Scripture like we see in the whole counsel of God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege to be your church. Thank you for the privilege to pursue kingdom advancement with a body of believers. 
Thank you that you have assembled us knowing our weaknesses, knowing our deficiencies, knowing our strengths, knowing how we complement one another. Lord, teach us to be a body like Ephesians that builds itself up. Like Paul says in Corinthians, teach us how to build on the foundation. May we labor well for your kingdom. May we labor well desiring nothing but the glory of Jesus, the magnification of Christ. Oh, Lord, teach us to treasure your whole counsel. Teach us to teach your whole counsel. May we not shrink from any of it. You have filled us with the Holy Spirit. May we surrender to him and live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.